Story seven of The Man Without a Country and Other Tales by Edward Everett Hale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story seven The Last Voyage of the Resolute Part One I had some opportunities, which no other writer for the press had, I believe, of examining the Resolute on her return from that weird voyage which is the most remarkable in the history of the navies of the world. And, as I know of no other printed record of the whole of that voyage than this, which was published in the Boston Daily Advertiser of June 11, 1856, I reprint it here. Readers should remember that the English government abandoned all claim on the vessel, that the American government then bought her of the salvers, refitted her completely, and sent her to England as a present to the Queen. The Queen visited the ship and accepted the present in person. The Resolute has never since been to sea. I do not load the page with authorities, but I studied the original reports of the Arctic expeditions carefully in preparing the paper, and I believe it to be accurate throughout. The voyage from New London to England, when she was thus returned, is strictly her last voyage. But when this article was printed, its name was correct. It was in early spring in 1852, early in the morning of the 21st of April, that the stout English discovery ship Resolute, manned by a large crew, commanded by a most manly man, Henry Kellett, left her moorings in the great river Thames, a little below the old town of London, was taken in tow by a fussy steam-tug, and proudly started as one of a fine English squadron in the great search of the nations for the lost Sir John Franklin. It was late in the year 1855, on the 24th of December, that the same ship, weather-worn, scantily rigged, without her lighter masts, all in the trim of a vessel which has had a hard fight with wind, water, ice, and time, made the lighthouse of New London, waited for day, and came round to anchor in the other river Thames of New England. Not one man of the English crew was on board. The gallant Captain Kellett was not there, but in his place an American master, who had shown, in his way, equal gallantry. The sixty or seventy men with whom she sailed were all in their homes more than a year ago. The eleven men with whom she returned had had to double parts, and to work hard to make good the places of the sixty and between the day when the Englishman left her and the day the Americans found her, she had spent fifteen months and more alone. She was girt in by the ice of the Arctic seas. No man knows where she went, what narrow scrapes she passed through, how low her thermometers marked cold. It is a bit of her history which was never written nor what befell her little tender, the intrepid, which was left in her neighborhood, ready for occupation, just as she was left. No man will ever tell of the nip that proved too much for her, of the opening of her seams and her disappearance beneath the ice. But here is the hardy resolute, which on the 15th of May, 1854, her brave commander left, as he was ordered, ready for occupation, which the brave Captain Buddington found September 10, 1855, more than a thousand miles from there, 
am pronounced still ready for occupation, and of what can be known of her history from old London to new London, from old England's Thames to new England's Thames, we will try to tell the story, as it is written in the letters of her old officers and told by the lips of her new rescuers. For Arctic work, if ships are to go into every nook and lane of ice that will yield at all to wind and steam, they must be as nearly indestructible as man can make them. For Arctic work, therefore, and for discovery work, ships built of the teak wood of Malabar and Java are considered most precisely fitted. Ships built of teak are said to be wholly indestructible by time. To this we owe the fact, which now becomes part of a strange coincidence, that one of the old Captain Cook's ships which went round the world with him has been, till within a few years, a whaling among the American whalers. Revisiting, as a familiar thing, the shores which she was first to discover. The English Admiralty, eager to fit out for Arctic service a ship of the best build they could find, bought the two teak-built ships Babu and Ptarmigan in 1850, sent them to their own dockyards to be refitted, and the Babu became the assistance, the Ptarmigan became the resolute, of their squadron of Arctic discovery. Does the reader know that in the desolation of the Arctic shores the ptarmigan is the bird most often found? It is the Arctic grouse or partridge, and often have the ptarmigans of Melville Island furnished sport and even dinners to the hungry officers of the Resolute, wholly unconscious that she had ever been their godchild, and had thrown off their name only to take that which she now wears. Early in May 1850, just at the time we now know that brave Sir John Franklin and the remnant of his crew were dying of starvation at the mouth of Bax River, the Resolute sailed first for the Arctic Seas, the flagship of Commodore Austin, with whose little squadron our own de Haven and his men had such pleasant intercourse near Beechy's Island. In the course of that expedition she wintered off Cornwallis Island, and in autumn of the next year returned to England. Whenever a squadron or a man or an army returns to England, unless in the extreme and exceptional case of complete victory over obstacle invincible, there is always dissatisfaction. This is the English way and so there was dissatisfaction when Captain Austin returned with his ships and men. There was also still a lingering hope that some trace of Franklin might yet be found, perhaps some of his party. Yet more, there were two of the searching ships which had entered the polar seas from Bering Straits on the west, the Enterprise and Investigator, which might need relief before they came through or returned. Arctic search became a passion by this time, and at once a new squadron was fitted out to take the seas in the spring of 1852. This squadron consisted of the Assistance and Resolute again, which had been refitted since their return, of the Intrepid and Pioneer, two steamships used as tenders to the Assistance and Resolute respectively, and the North Star, which had also been in those regions, and now went as a store-ship to the rest of the squadron. 
To the command of the whole Sir Edward Belcher was appointed, an officer who had served in some of the earlier Arctic expeditions. Officers and men volunteered in full numbers for the service, and these five vessels therefore carried out a body of men who brought more experience of the northern seas together than any expedition which had ever visited them. Of these, Captain Henry Kellett had command of the Resolute, and was second in seniority to Sir Edward Belcher, who made the assistance the flagship. It shows what sort of man he was, to say that for more than ten years he spent only part of one in England, and was the rest of the time in an antipodean hemisphere, or a hyperborean zone. Before brave Sir John Franklin sailed, Captain Kellett was in the Pacific. Just as he was to return home, he was ordered into the Arctic seas to search for Sir John. Three years successively, in his ship the Herald, he passed inside Bering Straits and far into the Arctic Ocean. He discovered Herald Island, the farthest land known there. He was one of the last men to see McClure in the Investigator before she entered the Polar Seas from the northwest. He sent three of his men on board that ship, to meet them all again, as will be seen, in strange surroundings. After more than seven years of this Pacific and Arctic life, he returned to England in May or June, 1851, and in the next winter volunteered to try the eastern approach to the same Arctic seas in our ship the Resolute. Some of his old officers sailed with him. We know nothing of Captain Kellett but what his own letters, dispatches, and instructions show, as they are now printed in enormous parliamentary blue books, and what the dispatches and letters of his officers and of his commander show. But these papers present the picture of a vigorous, hearty man, kind to his crew and a great favorite with them, brave in whatever trial, always considerate, generous to his officers, reposing confidence in their integrity. A man, in short, of whom the world will be apt to hear more. His commander, Sir Edward Belcher, tried by the same standard, appears a brave and ready man, apt to talk of himself, not very considerate of his inferiors, confident in his own opinion. In short, a man with whom one would not care to spend three Arctic winters. With him, as we trace the Resolute's fortunes, we shall have much to do. Of Captain Kellett, we shall see something all along till the day when he sadly left her, as bidden by Sir Edward Belcher, ready for occupation. With such a captain, and with sixty-odd men, the Resolute cast off her moorings in the grey of the morning on the 21st of April, 1852, to go in search of Sir John Franklin. The brave Sir John had died two years before, but no one knew that, nor whispered it. The river steam-tug Monkey took her in tow, other steamers took the assistance and the North Star, the intrepid and pioneer got up their own steam, and to the cheers of the little company gathered at Greenheit to see them off, they went down the Thames. At the Nore, the steamship Desperate took the Resolute in charge. Sir Edward Belcher made the signal Orkneys as the place of rendezvous, and in four days she was there, in Stromness Outer Harbour. Here there was a little shifting of provisions and coal-bags, those of the men who could get on shore squandered their spending money, 
and then on the 28th of April she and hers bade good-bye to British soil. And though they have welcomed it again long since, she has not seen it from then till now. The desperate steamer took her in tow, she sent her own tow-lines to the North Star, and for three days, in this procession of so wild and weird a name, they three forged on westward toward Greenland, a train which would have startled any old Viking had he fallen in with it, with a fresh gale blowing all the time, and a nasty sea. On the fourth day all the tow-lines broke, or were cast off, however, Neptune and the winds claimed their own, and the Resolute tried her own resources. The towing steamers were sent home in a few days more, and the squadron left to itself. We have too much to tell in this short article to be able to dwell on the details of her visits to the hospitable Danes of Greenland, or of her passage through the ice of Baffin Bay. But here is one incident which, as the event has proved, is part of a singular coincidence. On the 6th of July, all the squadron, tangled in the ice, joined a fleet of whalers beset in it by a temporary opening between the gigantic masses. Caught at the head of a bite in the ice, with the assistance and the pioneer, the Resolute was, for the emergency, docked there and by the ice closing behind her was for a while detained. Meanwhile the rest of the fleet, whalers and discovery ships, passed on by a little lane of water, the American whaler McClellan leading. This McClellan was one of the ships of the spirited New London merchants, Messrs. Perkins and Smith, another of whose vessels has now found the resolute and befriended her in her need in those seas, the McClellan was their pioneer vessel there. The North Star of the English squadron followed the McClellan. A long train stretched out behind. Whalers and government ships, as they happened to fall into line, along three-quarters of a mile. It was lovely weather, and though the long lane closed up so that they could neither go back nor forward, nobody apprehended injury till it was announced on the morning of the 7th that the poor McClellan was nipped in the ice and her crew were deserting her. Sir Edward Belcher was then in condition to befriend her, sent his carpenters to examine her, put a few charges of powder into the ice to relieve the pressure upon her, and by the end of the day it was agreed that her injuries could be repaired and her crew went on board again. But there is no saying what ice will do next. The next morning there was a fresh wind, the McClellan was caught again, and the water poured into her, a steady stream. She drifted about unmanageable, now into one ship, now into another, and the English whalemen began to pour on board, to help themselves to such plunder as they chose. At the captain's request, Sir Edward Belcher put an end to this, sent sentries on board, and working parties to clear her as far as might be, and keep account of what her stores were, and where they went to. In a day or two more she sank to the water's edge, and a friendly charge or two of powder put her out of the way of harm to the rest of the fleet. After such a week spent together it will easily be understood that the new London whalemen did not feel strangers on board one of Sir Edward's vessels when they found her ready for occupation three years and more afterwards. 
In this tussle with the ice, the _Resolute_ was nipped once or twice, but she has known harder nips than that since. As July wore away, she made her way across Baffin's Bay, and on the 10th of August made Beechey Island, known now as the headquarters for years of the searching squadrons, because, as it happened, the place where the last traces of Franklin's ships were found, the wintering place of his first winter. But Captain Kellett was on what is called the Western Search, and he only stayed at Beechey Island to complete his provisions from the store ships, and in the few days which this took, to see for himself the sad memorials of Franklin's party, and then the Resolute and Intrepid were away, through Barrow Straits, on the track which Perry ran along with such success thirty-three years before, and which no one had followed with as good fortune as he until now. On the 15th of August, Captain Kellett was off, bade good-bye to the party at Beechey Island, and was to try his fortune in independent command. He had not the best of luck at starting. The reader must remember that one great object of these Arctic expeditions was to leave provisions for starving men. For such a purpose, and for travelling parties of his own over the ice, Captain Kellett was to leave a depot at Assistance Bay, some thirty miles only from Beechey Island. In nearing for that purpose, the Resolute grounded, was left with but seven feet of water, the ice threw her over on her starboard bilge, and she was almost lost. Not quite lost, however, or we should not be telling her story. At midnight she was got off, leaving sixty feet of her false keel behind. Captain Kellett forged on in her, left a depot here and another there, and at the end of the short Arctic summer had come as far westward as Sir Edward Perry came. Here is the most westerly point the reader will find on most maps far north in America, the Melville Island of Captain Perry. Captain Kellett's associate, Captain McClintock of the Intrepid, had commanded the only party which had been here since Perry. In 1851 he came over from Austin's squadron with a sledge party. So confident is every one there that nobody has visited those parts unless he was sent, that McClintock encouraged his men one day by telling them that if they got on well they should have an old cart Perry had left thirty-odd years before to make a fire of. Sure enough they came to the place, and there was the wreck of the cart, just as Perry left it. They even found the ruts the old cart left in the ground, as if they had not been left a week. Captain Kellett came into harbor, and with great spirit he and his officers began to prepare for the extended searching parties of the next spring. The Resolute and her tender came to anchor off Dealey Island, and there she spent the next eleven months of her life, with great news around her in that time. There is not much time for traveling in autumn. The days grow very short and very cold. But what days there were, were spent in sending out carts and sledges with depots of provisions which the parties of the next spring could use. Different officers were already assigned to different lines of search in spring. On their journeys they would be gone three months and more, with a party of some eight men, dragging a sled very like a Yankee wood sled with their instruments and provisions over ice and snow. To extend these searches as much as possible, 
and to prepare the men for that work when it should come, advanced depots were now sent forward in the autumn, under the charge of the gentlemen who would have to use them in the spring. One of these parties, the South Line of Melville Island party, was under a spirited young officer, Mr. Meacham, who had tried such service in the last expedition. He had two of Her Majesty's sledges, the Discovery and the Fearless, a depot of twenty days' provision to be used in the spring, and enough for twenty-five days' present use. All the sledges had little flags made by some young lady friends of Sir Edward Belcher's. Mr. Meacham's bore an armed hand and sword on a white ground with the motto, Per mare per terum per glacium. Over mud, land, snow, and ice they carried their depot, and were nearly back when, on the 12th of October, 1852, Mr. Meacham made the great discovery of the expedition. On the shore of Melville Island, above Winter Harbor, is a great sandstone boulder, ten feet high, seven or eight broad, and twenty and more long, which is known to all those who have anything to do with those regions as Perry's sandstone, for it stood near Perry's observatory the winter he spent there, and Mr. Fisher, his surgeon, cut on a flat face of it this inscription. His Britannic Majesty's ships Hecla and Griper, commanded by W. E. Perry and Mr. Lydon, wintered in the adjacent harbor, 1819-20. A. Fisher sculped. It was a sort of god-terminus put up to mark the end of that expedition, as the Danish gentlemen tell us our Dighton Rock is the last point of Thorfinn's expedition to these parts. Nobody came to read Mr. Fisher's inscriptions for thirty years and more. A little arctic hare took up her home under the great rock, and saw the face of man for the first time, when, on the 5th of June, 1851, Mr. McClintock, on his first expedition this way, had stopped to see whether possibly any of Franklin's men had ever visited it. He found no signs of them, had not so much time as Mr. Fisher for stone-cutting, but carved the figures 1851 on the stone, and left it, and the hare. To this stone, on his way back to the Resolute, Mr. Meacham came again, as we said, on the 12th of October, one memorable Tuesday morning, having been bidden to leave a record there. He went on in advance of his party, meaning to cut 1852 on the stone. On top of it was a small cairn of stones, built by Mr. McClintock the year before. Meacham examined this, and to his surprise a copper cylinder rolled out from under a spirit tin. On opening it, I drew out a roll folded in a bladder, which, being frozen, broke and crumbled. From its dilapidated appearance I thought at the moment it must be some record of Sir Edward Perry, and, fearing I might damage it, laid it down with the intention of lighting the fire to thaw it. My curiosity, however, overcame my prudence, and on opening it carefully with my knife, I came to a roll of cartridge paper with the impression fresh upon the seals. My astonishment may be conceived on finding it contained an account of the proceedings of Her Majesty's ship investigator, since parting company with the Herald, Captain Kellett's old ship, in August 1850 in Bering Straits also a chart which disclosed to view 
not only the long sought Northwest Passage, but the completion of the survey of Banks and Wollaston lands. Opened and endorsed Commander McClintock's dispatch, found it contained the following additions. Opened and copied by his old friend and messmate upon this date, April 28, 1852, Robert McClure. Party all well and return to investigator today. A great discovery, indeed, to flash across one in a minute. The investigator had not been heard from for more than two years. Here was news of her not yet six months old. The Northwest Passage had been dreamed of for three centuries and more. Here was news of its discovery, news that had been known to Captain McClure for two years. McClure and McClintock were lieutenants together in the Enterprise when she was sent after Sir John Franklin in 1848, and wintered together at Port Leopold the next winter. Now, from different hemispheres, they had come so near meeting at this old block of sandstone. Mr. Meacham bade his mate build a new cairn to put the record of the story in, and hurried on to the Resolute with his great news news of almost everybody but sir john franklin strangely enough the other expedition captain collinson's had had a party in that neighbourhood between the other two under mr parks but it was his extreme point possible and he could not reach the sandstone though he saw the ruts of mcclure's sleigh this was not known till long afterwards the investigator as it appeared from this dispatch of captain mcclure's had been frozen up in the Bay of Mercy of Banksland. Banksland, having been for thirty years at once an Ultima Thule and Terra Incognita, put down on the maps where Captain Perry saw it across thirty miles of ice and water in 1819. Perhaps she was still in that same bay. These old friends wintering there, while the Resolute and Intrepid were lying under Dealey Island, and only one hundred and seventy miles between. It must have been tantalizing to all parties to wait the winter through, and not even get a message across. But until winter made it too cold and dark to travel, the ice in the strait was so broken up that it was impossible to attempt to traverse it, even with a light boat, for the lanes of water. So the different autumn parties came in, the last on the last of October, and the officers and men entered on their winter's work and play to push off the winter days as quickly as they could. The winter was very severe, and it proved that, as the resolute lay, they were a good deal exposed to the wind. But they kept themselves busy, exercised freely, found game quite abundant within reasonable distance on shore, whenever the light served, kept schools for the men, delivered scientific lectures to whoever would listen, established the theatre for which the ship had been provided at home, and gave jugglers' exhibitions by way of variety. The recent system of travelling in the fall and spring cuts in materially to the length of the Arctic winters, as Ross, Perry, and Back used to experience it, and it was only from the 1st of November to the 10th of March that they were left to their own resources. Late in October one of the Resolute's men died, and in December one of the Intrepid's, but excepting these cases they had little sickness, for weeks no one on the sick list. Indeed, Captain Kellett says cheerfully 
that a sufficiency of good provisions, with plenty of work in the open air, will ensure good health in that climate. As early in the spring as he dared risk a traveling party, namely on the 10th of March, 1853, he sent what they all called a forlorn hope across to the Bay of Mercy to find any traces of the investigator, for they scarcely ventured to hope that she was still there. This start was earlier by thirty-five days than the early parties had started on the preceding expedition, but it was every way essential that if Captain McClure had wintered in the Bay of Mercy, the messenger should reach him before he sent off any or all his men in travelling parties in the spring. The little forlorn hope consisted of ten men under the command of Lieutenant Pearn, an officer who had been with Captain Kellett in the Herald on the Pacific side, had spent a winter in the Plover up Bering Straits, and had been one of the last men whom the investigator had seen before they put into the Arctic Ocean to discover, as it proved, the Northwest Passage. Here we must stop a moment to tell what one of these sledge parties is by whose efforts so much has been added to our knowledge of Arctic geography, in journeys which could never have been achieved in ships or boats. In the work of the Resolute's parties in this spring of 1852, Commander McClintock travelled 1,325 miles with his sledge, and Lieutenant Meacham 1,163 miles with his through regions before wholly unexplored. The sledge, as we have said, is in general contour not unlike a Yankee wood sled about eleven feet long. The runners are curved at each end. The sled is fitted with a light canvas trough, so adjusted that, in case of necessity, all the stores and so forth can be ferried over any narrow lane of water in the ice. There are packed on this sled a tent for eight or ten men, five or six pikes, one or more of which is fitted as an ice chisel, two large buffalo skins, a water-tight floor-cloth, which contrives a double debt to pay, a floor by night, the sledge's sail by day, as it must be remembered that day and night in these regions are very equivocal terms. There are, besides, a cooking apparatus of which the fire is made in spirit or tallow lamps, one or two guns, a pick and shovel, instruments for observation, pannikins, spoons, and a little magazine of such necessaries with the extra clothing of the party. Then the provision, the supply of which measures the length of the expedition, consists of about a pound of bread and a pound of pemmican per man per day, six ounces of pork, and a little preserved potato, rum, lime-juice, tea, chocolate, sugar, tobacco, or other such creature comforts. The sled is fitted with two drag-ropes at which the men haul. The officer goes ahead to find the best way among hummocks of ice or masses of snow. Sometimes on a smooth flow, before the wind, the floor-cloth is set for a sail, and she runs off merrily, perhaps with several of the crew on board, and the rest running to keep up. But sometimes over broken ice it is a constant task to get her on at all. You hear, one, two, three, haul, all day long, as she is worked out of one ice cradle hole, over a hummock, into another. Different parties select different hours for traveling. 
Captain Kellett finally considered that the best division of time, when, as usual, they had constant daylight, was to start at four in the afternoon, travel till 10 p.m., breakfast then, tent and rest four hours, travel four more, tent, dine, and sleep nine hours. This secured sleep when the sun was the highest and most trying to the eyes. The distances accomplished with this equipment are truly surprising. Each man, of course, is dressed as warmly as flannel, woolen cloth, leather, and sealskin will dress him. For such long journeying, the study of boots becomes a science, and our authorities are full of discussions as to canvas or woolen or carpet or leather boots, of strings and of buckles. When the time to tent comes, the pikes are fitted for tent poles and the tent set up, its doors to leeward, on the ice or snow. The floor cloth is laid for the carpet. At an hour fixed, all talking must stop. There is just room enough for the party to lie side by side on the floor cloth. Each man gets into a long felt bag made of heavy felting, literally nearly half an inch thick. He brings this up wholly over his head and buttons himself in. He has a little hole in it to breathe through. Over the felt is sometimes a brown holland bag meant to keep out moisture. The officer lies farthest in the tent, as being next the wind, the point of hardship, and so of honor. The cook for the day lies next the doorway, as being first to be called. Side by side the others lie between. Over them all, Mackintosh blankets with the buffalo robes are drawn, by what power this deponent saith not, not knowing. No watch is kept, for there is little danger of intrusion. Once a whole party was startled by a white bear smelling at them, who waked one of their dogs, and a droll time they had of it, springing to their arms while enveloped in their sacks. But we remember no other instance where a sentinel was needed, and occasionally in the journals the officer notes that he overslept in the morning and did not call the cook early enough. What a passion is sleep, to be sure, that one should oversleep with such comforts round him. Some thirty or forty parties, thus equipped, set out from the Resolute while she was under Captain Kellett's charge on various expeditions. As the journey of Lieutenant Pym to the investigator at Banksland was that on which turned the great victory of her voyage, we will let that stand as a specimen of all. None of the others, however, were undertaken at so early a period of the year, and on the other hand several others were much longer, some of them, as has been said, occupying three months and more. End of Story 7, Part 1